Bring it in. Read option back from a snowy Washington, D.C. College football playoff is set. We have our championship lined up, Georgia-Bama. We had a wild weekend in the NFL. Playoff picture is almost completely set. We know who our one seed is in the NFC, still waiting on the AFC. A whole lot to get into. Flying solo here again. Uh, Vito and Scotty should be back with us on Friday's pod when we record. That should be Wednesday night, Thursday night. I think we're going to record. We're going to figure out a time um, because we we got a lot to preview. You know, first week 18 in the NFL uh, ever. <laughs> and we also have, you know, college football playoff Monday, Monday night. Um, so we'll get into all that stuff. We'll, we'll dive in um, this pod though is is dedicated to what we saw this past weekend which was uh a condensed weekend of of sports primarily obviously the nfl college football it was a football weekend uh the friday night games between georgia and michigan and alabama and cincinnati were letdowns you know that's just what they you know we'll call it uh, as we see it um there is a weird trend with the college football playoff where these semifinal games are just blowouts. Um, in, in the, we've had 16 semifinal games. This is the eighth year of the college football playoffs. So we've had 16, and I believe only two have been one score games by the end of the uh, by the end of the game. We had the incredible Oklahoma Georgia game in the Rose Bowl a few years back. That's probably the best of the semifinal games. But for whatever reason, we get to this point. We spend a month hyping up these games only for it to be let down. And, and I kind of want to open the show today talking about this in particular because I've not heard a good explanation for it. And so I, I've taken pieces, I've heard different people, and, and I think I have an idea as to why. But admittedly, it just seems to be one of these weird trends in sports that we don't really have a, a solid answer for. And first and foremost, I, I think the biggest impact of it is the time, right? It, you have about a month, closer to five weeks from the time your season ends to the time you play these semifinal games. And there's a bunch of other factors too, right? Like if you are a Cincinnati or a Michigan, this is your first time going to the college football playoff, and especially Cincinnati, you're going up against Nick Saban. Like Nick Saban has never lost in the semifinals of the college football playoff. He's six and oh, seven and oh, which is just absurd. But it also, I mean, it's Bama. It's what it's who Bama has been. It's what we've seen from them uh, basically since Nick Saban got there, minus that first season. You look at you know, what this Cincinnati team was at the end of their regular season, right? They beat the crap out of Houston in the AAC championship game. Well, the second that ends, you're so used to playing a game the next week, you're in a rhythm, you have this momentum, and all of a sudden it just stops, right? It's, you're practicing still for three weeks, but you don't have an opponent. 
you can't go live in practice. Otherwise you're going to end up hurting your own players or at least risk the injury of hurting your own players. And at this point in the year, you want to make sure you're full go anyway. So practices themselves, although they're, they're intense and you're, you're putting a lot of game plan in, it's not that same routine of Monday, we break down film. Tuesday, you know, we install. Wednesday, we install. Thursday, we do a walkthrough. Friday is tape and final prep, and then Saturday is your game. Right, that rhythm that you get in as a team gets completely thrown off, and that's where the experience factor comes in. And one of the things I would equate to it is what people say about the Super Bowl, right? People always say this, like when you – the halftime of the Super Bowl is significantly longer than the traditional halftime uh, in the NFL. Normal halftime is 15 minutes, and the Super Bowl it's, I believe, about 30. So that difference, even though it's only 15 minutes, makes a big difference. And you hear players all the time talk about like, man, that halftime, it's, it's a long time. Like you really have to kind of stay calm, take your shoulder pads off, change your shirt, you know, relax for a second. Because if you go in and you're just high energy that whole time, you're going to come out flat in the second half. And I think there's a, obviously on a bigger scale, it's a similar thing with the college football playoff where you, you have this routine, you've been moving all season, you've been putting up, Obviously, great performance after great performance. I mean, Cincinnati was was 13-0 going into this game. And they end the season 13-1, which is nothing to be ashamed of. It's an unbelievable season. But I think that layoff and the lack of experience while going up against a coach who knows how to prepare for this, because he does it every single year, Nick Saban. And even Kirby Smart on the other side, like they've been to a college football playoff. They won a college football playoff semifinal in that game against Oklahoma with Baker Mayfield, I talked about it a little bit earlier. And then they go on, they play the incredible national championship game against Alabama. And I, I've heard a lot of people dumping on what these games were, right? Which ultimately, as a fan, it's a letdown, and I get it. But I also think it's a testament to how good Nick Saban is and how good Kirby Smart is. Right. Both of those guys, they know how to run a program. And even Kirby had been to multiple college football playoffs as the D.C. at Alabama. And the whole idea of the playoff is still to get the two best teams in the national championship game. And there's no argument for any other team to have gotten in over Michigan or Cincinnati. I mean, what are we going to put Notre Dame in there? I mean, if Oklahoma State had had pulled off the game against Baylor that he was inches short in the big 12 championship game. Maybe there would have been a compelling case for, for Oklahoma state, but Cincinnati was undefeated. They did their job. They beat Notre Dame. They beat Indiana. They beat power five schools. They had a shot. And I'll tell you what, there was one sequence at the end of the first half in that game that really separated what, you know, what was a relatively close game. Uh, in the first half, which was, I believe, it was towards the end of the second quarter, say like maybe three minutes left, and Cincinnati punts the ball, and it gets muffed by the Alabama punt returner, and Cincinnati damn near recovers it. They would have gotten the ball on the Alabama like 15 yard line, uh, and at that point it was a 13, it was a 10 to three game or 13 to three game, um, and then Alabama gets the ball. 
they have a penalty backs them up to their own like five yard line and they just go on this long ass run right uh end up being i think like a 40 yard touchdown pass is what sealed off the, the 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 scoring drive there but bama can score on you so quickly with their wide receivers with bryce young and then you can't say enough about brian robinson the running back who you know cincinnati went into this game knowing that their cornerbacks could you know basically go man-to-man against alabama especially without john mechie and they did alabama respected the shit out of the secondary for cincinnati bill o'brien said you know all week leading up to it it's like i don't want to hear any of this group of five bullshit he's like this this is a damn good football team this is the best secondary we've played all year the one advantage that they had was in the middle was it right up the middle in the trenches there's nothing Cincinnati could have done to slow down the running game of Alabama. I, I, the the Chip Kelly has said this for years. <clears throat> the most important recruit in college football is the ready-made 275 to 300 pound defensive tackle. There's only a handful of guys whose bodies have developed to that point when they're in college. And if you can get them, the Jordan Davises, the Fletcher Coxes, the Derek Browns, those guys are absolute game changers. Um, and, and the thing is, is when you're going up against the big horses up front, like Alabama has, and like Georgia has, you have to be stacked in the interior defensive line. And we saw the same thing in, in the Georgia Michigan game, right? There was all this talk about Aiden Hutchinson and David Ojabu, who are both awesome edge rushers. But the one part of that defensive line for Michigan that is a weak spot is the interior defensive lineman. They have great edge guys. They're a little weak at linebacker, and they don't have the interior defensive lineman to handle Georgia's offensive line, which, by the way, I think underratedly is one of the top two or three offensive lines in all of college football. So we look at, okay, Michigan, they have the edge guys. They both play similar styles. Who is going to be better, right? Who's What was going to be the determining factor? Well, whoever won in the trenches – because that was the strength of both teams. And it turns out Georgia was just significantly better in the trenches than Michigan was. And you think, okay, well, maybe if they had a Bryce Young type of quarterback, that could alleviate some of that matchup. Well, they don't. They had Cade McNamara, who had a rough day and never got benched for J.J. McCarthy. And Cade McNamara's had an awesome year. He's been the perfect game manager. And I think he and Stetson Bennett are kind of carbon copies for each, uh, you know, for one another. But what's interesting is, Georgia and Michigan are built in the same vein, in the same style, but Georgia's got the SEC guys. And this is when the Big Ten people, and, and I'll say this again to Scotty and Vito when we're doing the pod on, on Thursday, they don't, want to, they don't want to hear that the SEC is that much better, right? And people, especially SEC fans, love to throw out all the draft picks and stuff. At some point, that stuff does inevitably matter. It's not to say that it's impossible, right? We saw Penn State handle the big guys from Auburn up front in week two this year, week three. But at some point in the game, having the size matters. Having the the extra level of athlete matters. And the defensive line for as as winded and tired and uh, exhausted as they looked against Alabama, I mean, Jordan Davis was an absolute game wrecker. Um, some of the linebackers at Georgia are just freaks and they're really, really good defense. Like that was the Georgia we saw all year, 
a lot of people didn't sit down and watch Georgia closely because they were dominating every game that they played in until the SEC championship game. And then everyone's like, well, what's the big deal with this defense? Is it the greatest defense we've ever seen in college football? No, probably not. But the stuff they were doing that they did for 11, 12 weeks before the SEC championship game can't just go unnoticed, right? Just because they didn't have the, the hardest SEC schedule this year. There's only one team in the SEC who didn't make a bowl game. One. So I get why fans of other conferences get annoyed when SEC fans are as obnoxious as they are, because they are obnoxious and they are annoying. But there's truth in what they're saying. At some point, and we can bear, you know, beat the old expression to freaking death, right? It's not the X's and O's, it's the Jimmys and the Joes. That shit does matter. And for as much as I love Cincinnati and was pulling for them all year and wanted to see a miracle get pulled off because any given Sunday is real. Cincinnati, there's a world where Cincinnati could have beaten Alabama. They played 100 times. Maybe they only win it twice. But there was still a chance. I do believe that. And same thing with Michigan. (laughs) But the overwhelming odds were stacked against them, especially in the Michigan case when you have two teams that are built very similarly. Built on defense, built on running the ball. And I think the player who deserves the most credit here um, is, is Stetson Bennett. All right. That dude has had to basically look over his back shoulder all season. JT Daniels, he was number one recruit, you know, at coming out of college or coming out of high school. Goes to USC plays well, then he tears his ACL, and then he he transfers to Georgia. He couldn't stay healthy last year. Then he couldn't stay healthy this year. And Stetson Bennett came in and at first was just doing enough. Didn't have to do a whole lot. They could run the ball. But he makes some really impressive throws. He's also a great athlete. (laughs) But the thing I love most about Stetson Bennett is he has – Great self-awareness, man. Talk about a guy who knows who he is. He knows he's not Superman. In fact, there's a story up on ESPN right now based off of a quote he gave in his press conference yesterday where he said, my job is not to be a savior. He grew up in Georgia. I think he played at a junior college for a couple of years before transferring up and, and, and playing at Georgia. He was a walk-on. He knows exactly who he is. He's not, you know, the Baker Mayfield or the Bryce Young or pick whatever brilliant and, and successful, you know, college quarterback you want. He knows exactly what he can do. And what's impressive about it is, it, again, kind of reminds me about like what New England's done with Mac Jones is, they let him do a little bit more. They don't. They never ask him to do too much, but they do let him do a little bit more and a little bit more. And at the end of the day, they kind of need it, right? Because when they go up against Alabama here on Monday, and we're going to do a, a full breakdown of this game, previewing it on uh, Friday's pod, and then we're going to do a reaction pod on, on Tuesday of next week. Um, we might even stay up late on Monday night and try to record that, but we'll see what happens with work schedules and whatnot. Um, Stetson Bennett has done a little bit more. And when they go up against Alabama, 
he knows what to expect in terms of size, speed, all of that stuff. Cause they just played, you know, a month ago in the SEC championship game. But he also knows that there's like, Hey, we have to do things slightly differently, right? Georgia has to be able to run the ball. That, that is first and foremost for Georgia. They have to get white going. They have to get the, the chains moving. Right. Cause if you ask Seth and Bennett to do too much, it's going to fall apart. But even still, in the last month when people are talking about, do you start with go JT Daniels? Do you start Stetson Bennett in the college world playoff? I was of the belief that you keep rolling with Stetson Bennett. Because this is a guy, again, he's been the leader of this team all year. He's been the emotional leader. He's been on the on-the-field leader. He has a pulse of the team, of the program. He knows the significance. And he carries it pretty well. And in that first meeting, he actually played a lot better than you think. There were a couple of big-time drops by guys. He threw a bunch of beautiful footballs in that game, like really, really good balls. Brock Bowers, I mean, the injury with him, that's a huge concern. Like, I think when you look at the skill position guys that Georgia has, George Pickens needs to be there. But he, again, towards ACL in March, and, and the fact that he was even playing in the SEC championship game is ridiculous. And then Brock Bowers, the tight end, is the best skill position guy that Georgia has, especially in the air, you know, through the air. So they need him, but he's also going to need some help on the offensive line. Will Anderson's going to come in and try to ruin, you know, the, the party, as it were, for Georgia. So Georgia's going to have to run the ball. They're going to have to be on the aggressive. Got to keep the ball out of Bryce Young's hands because they can just score so freaking quick. You know, John Mechie tears his ACL in, in the SEC championship game. Well, for this game, all of a sudden, Jameson Williams, who was the Deshaun Jackson deep burner for this team, is now the possession receiver. Like, that's how talented the wide receivers are at Alabama, that like, okay, your possession receiver, your X is out. Okay, boom. Uh, we're going to move our Z receiver down to, you know, here. And you're going to be our possession guy. You're going to run little five-yard curls. You're going to catch everything Bryce Young throws it to you just to keep the sticks moving. And then we're going to let our other, you know, redshirt freshman or sophomore, whatever, we're just going to let him run it and take, try to take the top off the defense. And they were able to do that successfully. So Bama can beat you in so many different ways on offense that to rest, because that's the other thing too. Yes, Jordan Davis looked like he was in better shape. Uh, in this game. And that was a huge thing in that Bama Georgia title game was that it looked like Georgia's defensive linemen were just gassed. So you have to keep the defense on your own defense on the sidelines, let them rest. It's so that way they can go full throttle because Brian Robinson can run the ball. So Bama's going to try to run it, but they don't have the secondary on the outside that Cincinnati does. They're the inverse of Cincinnati. It, you know, Georgia's got a couple of decent cornerbacks. But their strength is in the interior defensive line and at the linebacker position. So Bama's going to try to attack you through the air. And Bryce Young is going to scramble around and make plays. I mean, that dude is just awesome. He is so good. I, I Honestly, like I was, but I was annoyed when he won the Heisman because I just felt like there were other players who had better seasons to that point. But seeing him, I mean, he had a play in the game against Cincinnati where the whole pocket is collapsing around him. He takes two steps to his left, cuts back, goes up into the pocket, and it looks like he's about to get absolutely murdered. 
And then all of a sudden the running back who had stayed in to help block starts to kind of go out almost like on an option, like on a swing route. And before he can even take too many steps, Bryce Young options the ball, like pitches it out to his right and just perfectly to the running back who I think who was Brian Robinson, who then took it for like 30, 40 yards. It was an absolute game changer of a play. It was on a third down too. So that's the kind of stuff that Bryce Young does that makes him so difficult to beat. And the best thing for George is to keep his ass on the sidelines. So they have to run the ball. They have to, you know, pick up first downs, stay ahead of the chains and not beat themselves. Georgia's got a big task ahead of them. But Georgia looked better against Michigan than Bama did against Cincinnati. And I think it's because Cincinnati challenged them in a way that they hadn't had to be challenged this year because of how good that secondary was and because of how good of a defensive coach Luke Fickle is, that they came up with a really, really strong game plan. The offense just wasn't able to move the ball. And so the question, I guess, comes down to this. Can Georgia's offense move the ball better on Alabama's defense? Because we've seen teams move the ball on Bama this year. I mean, Texas A&M scored, I think, like 34 points in that game that they won when they upset Bama. I do think Georgia can get it done. But to me, I think what's going to come down to this game, and again, we'll, we'll go into a little further detail on it on Friday. Who's going to be the best player on the field at any given moment? When Georgia's offense is on the ball, is on the field, probably Will Anderson, Alabama's defensive end and outside linebacker. When Alabama's offense is on the field, it's Bryce Young. Jordan Davis will be in that conversation. Obviously, a couple of those Georgia linebackers will too, but it's going to be Bryce Young. So Georgia's going to come in as an underdog in this game, and they're going to have a lot to prove, but I think they'll be able to do it. Um, nonetheless, if you're sitting here after that and, and you take anything away from this, right. Um, just don't let it be that we don't need to expand the playoff because if you watch the games on Saturday, that Rose bowl, which was drunk off of its ass, the Oklahoma state comeback against Notre Dame, which by the way, that Notre Dame streak of was like 16 straight bowl losses is just horrific. Um, the Kentucky-Iowa game, what a fun matchup. Like, that's that was Big Ten football, but featuring an, an SEC school, which I loved. Uh, and then you wrap up with the Baylor and Ole Miss game. And if you see that, all those schools would have been in the mix here for a playoff. If you're a fan of college football, there's no argument for wanting to expand the play. Because even if you expand it, Georgia and Bama probably still make it to the end. Again, the majority of the time they probably do. But wouldn't it be awesome to see somebody else do it? Wouldn't it be awesome to see Alabama get upset in the second round? I think it would. And all of a sudden, instead of putting all of the pressure on these two semifinal games in this weird gap, you shorten that gap. So instead of you know four and a half weeks, it probably drops down to – two and a half weeks or three and a half weeks. You can do playoff games on home sites, which is electric. And all of a sudden, people care about bowl games again. I mean, the TV numbers would be off the charts. 
And ESPN would bid a shitload of money for it too. So all of the conferences would be making more money off of it. You wouldn't have situations like this year where three out of the power five conferences are left out of the playoff. And you never know. You'll get crazy upsets. You'll get crazy games. All those games on Saturday, so many people weren't watching them unless you were a diehard college football fan. Because it was New Year's Day. It was a Saturday. People had plans. It was beautiful out. It was like 65 degrees. You know, that's the kind of day that, like, if they, if they were actual playoff games, if they were meaningful games, every eyeball would be on it. But instead, because the way the schedule worked out this year, a lot of people weren't watching. A lot of people weren't paying attention to the college, you know, to these games that weren't college football playoff semifinal games. And it'll incentivize for all the people who hate the opt-outs, it'll incentivize players to not opt out because they'll have a chance to go win a national championship. And, you know, a lot of the, the keyboard warriors went online on Saturday and when Matt Corral got hurt, um, I get it, you know, not going to lie. That was my first thought. I was like, damn, is Matt Corral, like, is he cooked? Like, did he just, you know, tear his Achilles? Like, is, is he, is his draft stock not, like, luckily it's just a sprained ankle, which is good. But that's, like, that's scary shit, man. And if he had chosen not to play, doesn't matter, right? I go back to what I said before. Why do you care? Why do you give a shit? Big Cat had a fantastic tweet about it, um, which was pretty in line of my rant that I said last week, which is just, why do you care? They've earned the right to make their own decisions. It's their lives. Why the hell do you care? So many college football fans lean, especially down south, who are a lot of the people who have this issue with players opting out, are just very contradictory with their own beliefs. You know? Why, why are you sticking your nose into somebody else's business? It's their decision. You should be encouraging that based off of everything else that you believe. <laughs> but no, people are hypocritical because it involves something that they care about and have an emotional attachment to, and therefore they're allowed to be hypocrites and justify it in their own mind that way. And I work with people who do that, and it's incredibly frustrating. Um, and people who have a voice and still do that, and they don't recognize their own hypocrisy. And it's just like, hey, man. Matt Corral wanted to play. Awesome. Good for him. If he had gotten hurt, well, congrats, dude. You can, you know, you'll, you'll probably lose millions of dollars and probably fall in the draft and you may never be the same player again, but at least you had that pride, you know. It's like, come on, man. It's, it's okay. It's okay. You know, the players aren't the ones that are deciding to pay coaches $100 million for 10 years. You know, the players – they're not, they're not the ones who were making college football transactional. It was the higher-ups who made billions off of it for years and years and years without ever compensating the players. And the players are finally like, no, fuck it. I want to get mine. Y'all got yours for so long. We're getting ours. Sorry for the old heads who didn't, but we're getting ours. And I commend them for that. Okay. Um, that's pretty much all I got on the college football playoff stuff. Um, like I said, we're going to do a full breakdown on Friday. Uh, really try to get into some of the weeds of this matchup. I would believe it's going to be closer this time around. Um, but with Bama, you never know. Bama could come out there and, and hang 20 on them in the first quarter, and then all of a sudden it's like, shit, all right, well, so much for the crazy college football season 
that ends, you know, with the same usual suspect up top. But either way, I'm excited. Best two teams in college football. So uh, don't let the SEC bias bug you. These are the two best teams in college football, and uh, it's going to be awesome to get to watch them next week. So uh, more on that later on. We're going to take a quick break, come back, recap week 17, update the playoffs. Uh, I'm not going to go through every single game, but we are starting to see now the teams that are separating themselves. Um, But what I love about the AFC, man, AFC is just a wild, wild West, just completely open. Uh, And it should lead to a lot of fun over the next month uh, as we uh, get ready for the playoffs here in the NFL. So, Quick break, come back, and uh, we'll keep rolling here on a Tuesday. All right, so week 17, it's wrapped up, it's done. Um, I was thinking here, like, how did I want to start the NFL stuff today? Because this is the point in the year, right, where usually this would be the last week, but um, that second to last, last week of the season, like, there are games that you're just not going to watch. Like, regardless, like, I'm not watching Saints-Panthers. I'm not watching Seahawks-Lions. You know, you could even throw in, like, the Niners and the Texans. Like, there's just some games, Bears-Giants, obviously, is, like, the big one. Uh, There's just games I'm not going to sit down and spend my time watching, and Red Zone recognizes that and and completely pulls it away. So going through all the games just doesn't make sense. It just feels inefficient, right? So to me, I was thinking, well, let's highlight, right? What were the most impactful games here start to finish? And number one, which was one of the best games of the year, Cincinnati and Kansas City. Uh, The Bengals come back there in the second half and and clinch the AFC North. Um, You know, I I think I said, what, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, I had Scotty and, and I think Scotty and Vito on the pod. And I asked, like, who do you think wins? The AFC North, if you had to pick a team right now out of there. And I felt, you know, for most of the season when they were healthy, I I did think the Ravens had a chance, but the injuries kept getting worse and worse and worse. And the Bengals just quietly hung around, right? The defense is solid. But the offense, the upside of the offense when it's all clicking is really, really good. And the fact that Cincinnati is able to move the ball as well as they have been with an offensive line that I think gets overstated as like one of the worst offensive lines in football, but they don't play like it. You know, Burrow holds onto the ball long. He likes to, to scan the field, manipulate the pocket, move around and make plays. A lot of the sacks that we've seen Joe Burrow take are not like offensive line getting absolutely bull rushed and beaten and destroyed. Like there are plenty of those that are, you know, over the course of a season where guys get, just get beat, but the Bengals offensive line is not horrible. It's probably middle of the road, maybe slightly in the that, like 20 to 20 ish, 22 ish range, somewhere around there in terms of league ranks, but they can run the ball well. And Joe Burrow, his timing with some guys is really, really good. Um, When he does take sacks, a lot of them are coverage sacks where he's holding on to the ball too long. But for the most part, Joe Burrow gets the ball out on time. He gets it efficient. And then he also has the ability to create big plays. And when you have a guy like Jamar Chase on the outside, who Jamar Chase put together the single greatest game by a rookie wide receiver 
uh, we've ever seen. And honestly, one of, if not the best game, I think we've seen from a wide receiver this season, 11 catches, 266 yards and three touchdowns. When he put on the afterburner, someone did a, a screenshot of like the exact moment he hit it and he was right at midfield and started to cut back to the opposite end zone. And there were seven players from the chiefs within five yards. None of them had an angle on him. None of them were actually going to be able to tackle him. So I thought the tweet was a little bit misleading, but the, the fact of the matter was still like, there were seven guys within the realm of, of, of potentially touching him. And the second he put on the afterburners, it, that shit was wild. I mean, he took off like a freaking freight train and was gone. Uh, there's a reason why when we talked about it around draft time this year, why I was so dead set on J uh, as Jamar Chase being the number one wide receiver. And again, another reason why people should shut up about the whole opt-out thing, because Jamar Chase opted out of his entire final season uh, during the COVID year at LSU to go and prepare for the NFL draft, that dude is an absolute home run. And when you think about that LSU team, and I, I've had this debate before too with people about, I think that LSU team is in the conversation for one of the greatest ever. In 10 years, we'll look back at some of the pros on that team and, and realize like, okay, maybe it's not Miami of the early 2000s, but what they accomplished, they actually won the title that year, Miami in 2002. Yesterday was actually the 18-year anniversary of the, the controversial pass interference call um, against Ohio State that lost them the game. Uh, but that Miami team was special. The, that LSU team was really, really special. Um, and, and again, that wide receiving room, you had Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson, and you look what those guys are doing. What they both have done as rookies, I mean, Jamar Chase has over 1,400 yards receiving. Uh, J Justin Jefferson last year, I think, had like 1,300 yards. That, that, those are absurd numbers for rookies in any year. You know, Justin Jefferson, we talked about, like, basically the first guy to ever challenge Randy Moss's, you know, rookie record um, for receiving yards and touchdowns and all that stuff. And Jamar Chase coming out here and basically doing the exact same thing. And then you have factor in T. Higgins there, too. Uh, Tyler Boyd, like, they have three good wide receivers and then Joe Mixon you know ends up with 86 total yards 46 on the ground on 12 carries you know he's averaging a little bit less than four yards a carry that that's enough of a running game that'll get you through uh albeit you know Joe Burrow had to throw the ball 40 times in this game but you know technically 39 but you go 30 of 39 446 yards and four touchdowns I mean Jesus Christ and this is against a Chiefs defense that had been playing really really well the Chiefs defense has had not given up points to pretty much anybody I mean the Chiefs came out up 14 nothing and you're thinking like man this game this is the Chiefs the Chiefs are just dominant right now it's the old Chiefs again and yet the Bengals just plug away plug away plug away and they don't give up and you know we do a bad job in sports media as a whole to uh, not giving credit to coaches who we are skeptical at first Right. Like if it's a coach that everyone thinks is a home run hire, then we hold them to a different standard. Right. Like a guy like uh, Matt Nagy, Matt Nagy gets hired, was offensive coordinator for the Chiefs. Uh, how, you know, was the guy who found Patrick Mahomes, all, all this stuff. And the leash that we gave him was a little bit longer, especially he came in with a good, good first season. 
Um, even a guy like Mike Zimmer, right? Like there's a lot of respect for Mike Zimmer around the league. Um, so people are, are, are slower to criticize guys like that when, you know, there's an argument Mike Zimmer probably should have been gone after last season. But Zach Taylor getting hired, you know, kind of goofy, looks like, a, like he sells real estate in, you know, in like Burbank, California. Like he's a very like just average looking dude, average name. No one really knew much about him. A pretty boring personality. Uh, and, and they come in that first year and they're the worst team in football. They draft Joe Burrow. And now two years later, this is year number three, they win the AFC North. One of the consistently one of the most difficult divisions to win, especially when you look at the Browns and the talent that's on that roster, the Steelers, obviously they're not what they've been in the past, but it's still Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin, by the way, has never had a losing season. He clinched that on Monday night, which is just, again, absurd. 15 years, 15 winning seasons. And the Ravens with Lamar Jackson. Now Lamar getting hurt. Like there's definitely some things that broke the Bengals way, but the Bengals also blew out the Ravens when Lamar was healthy. Right. Like the Bengals have won a lot of big games this year. And with the exception of the blowout against uh, Cleveland, which was a weird game. Uh, and then obviously they lost to the Bears. Uh, they almost lost to the Jaguars on that, you know, Sunday, on that Thursday night game. And then uh, I think they lost to the Jets too. Like there's definitely been some weird games. And, and I know it might be a big sample size to say, hey, take those three games out and look what the Bengals are. But seriously, take those three games out and, we're talking about a 10, 10 and three and all those other games with really impressive wins, including what might be one of the most impressive wins we've seen all year. So the Bengals are sitting right now. They've clinched the AFC um, North and they're sitting as the three seed. I think opening up right now, they would play the Colts in the first round. Um, But we'll see, obviously the the final rankings will um, standings rather will will sort themselves out as uh, week 18 comes to, to a close because there's still a lot to play for in the AFC as a whole. But the most consequential thing here was the Bengals beating the Chiefs, knocked the Chiefs out of number one in the AFC. And now the Tennessee Titans at 11 and five are the number one seed in the AFC. They, if they hold on to that, which I'm pretty sure that all they have to do is beat, I think they play Houston this week. They win that game. They get a bye week, so it's another week. And then there's a good chance Derrick Henry comes back in that game. And even if not, Dante Foreman is an impressive running back. Like, say what you will, and I I get it, but, like, him on so many other teams, I think because he's not Derrick Henry, so it's just never going to look the same as when Derrick Henry's running and healthy and, and, you know, playing for that team. But the Titans, you know, that first round bye is huge. And then the road runs through Nashville all, all the way up to the, you know, the end of it, like that game was massive for Kansas City. And the fact that the Bengals went in with a chance to win the AFC North, fates in their own hands, and you're playing the team that was playing the best football in the NFL, you bring them to your house, and you pull that game off, that's huge for the Bengals. Absolutely huge. And, and, and just unbelievably impressive uh, win for them. And Joe Burrow's just got that it factor, man. And and I know the arm strength isn't always there and some of the throws, like he doesn't have that zip on the ball on, you know, quick 10-yard outs that guys like, even like Trevor Lawrence has. He doesn't have that arm. He doesn't have that skill set, but he's got the intangible makeup of a guy that you want to be your franchise quarterback for the next, you know, 15 years. And, you know, barring injury and anything else, like the Bengals are set up in a really good spot 
they'll be able to draft more pieces along the offensive line, hopefully get some more investments. They got a bunch of guys on rookie contracts. And most importantly, you have your franchise. You have Joe Burrow. And when the Bengals are cooking, there's a it's hard to find a better looking uniform for a team when they're cooking. Because I love the Bengals. I grew up, you know, loving Chad Johnson and TJ Hushmanzada and Carson Palmer and Rudy Johnson and and those teams. They were they were a fun team. Uh, you know, and defensively, they were a good team, too. And, and when they were cooking those years in Cincinnati, they were a team I always kind of wanted to root for. I always wanted to see the Bengals win. And for uh, an organization that forever has had bad ownership, a win like that goes goes a long way. Um, and that would, you know, like I said, I, that is the most consequential game of all these games. The other one that I think was the most impactful was the the Cardinals and the Cowboys. Uh the Cowboys, and I've said this all year, there's going to be big games in which Mike McCarthy does stupid things that hurt the team in the end, right? Like the, the Cardinals, for the most part, outplayed Dallas in this game. Zeke Elliott only ran for 20 yards. Credit to the Cardinals for slowing down the running game. But when Dak has played in big games, he has come up a little bit short. But I still felt like Dak did enough in this game that if Mike McCarthy doesn't blow all three of his timeouts and they could have challenged that play at the end, like that game could have gone completely differently. And it doesn't affect the standings all that much other than kind of solidifies the Cardinals as the five seed and keeps them in the hunt theoretically too, for, you know, a a, a potential week 18 upset where the Cardinals somehow find their way back to winning the NFC West. And the Rams damn near lost that game to the Ravens too. So I, I don't feel awesome about the Rams right now, especially for a 12 and four team. Like I, I don't think I've ever seen a four loss team that I've felt less confident in than the Rams. And the Rams could finish the year 13 and four, and they could also just as easily lose in the first round. You know, if they get a bad matchup, whether it's San Francisco, whether it's the Eagles, like there are teams that it's going to be a tough matchup for, for the Rams. But the Cardinals winning that game was huge for the Cardinals, right? Uh, It it was a bad loss for the Cowboys. Uh, It's obviously a good team, but it was a winnable game that they had a chance there at the end. And because of poor clock management, because Mike McCarthy ends up shooting themselves in the foot, the Cowboys end up not getting a chance to to figure out a way to win that game. And we're going to see something similar like that in the playoffs. We just are. And at this point, like, I didn't love the Mike McCarthy hire when they first made it. I thought it was an interest, an interesting decision, sure. Um, but McCarthy, he has experience. He obviously has won it, but he did it with Aaron Rodgers. He did it with a good defense, you know, and, and this is the best roster that McCarthy's had as a head coach since that Super Bowl team uh, when they when the uh, Rodgers went on, they beat the Steelers back when it was 2010, whatever year that was. McCarthy and the Cowboys, I think, are in some trouble when they get to these close games against good teams. Uh, Obviously, the Cowboys as a whole are a very talented team, but there's small things about them. And I think the lack of consistent winning, you know, look, could the Cowboys go in and make a run to the NFC Championship game? Yes, they have all the talent in the world to do so. But I definitely wouldn't bet on it. And the Cardinals on the other side, you know, with their three-game losing streak and, and some of the losses in that stretch, they needed a bounce back. They went from the number one seed to the five seed 
in a matter of like two weeks. And it's so easy in that kind of situation for a team to unravel completely, right? To, to basically be, um, you know, to, to crash the fall from grace as the number one team. And then there's no way of stopping it. This stops the bleeding. And not only does it stop the bleeding, it kind of reinvigorates your team heading into a really important stretch here, right? Because the season's all, it's, every NFL team throughout the season has ups and downs. There's very rare exceptions of teams that just cruise through, right? The 18-0 Patriots are pretty much the only ones that did. And even still, they hit their low in the Super Bowl game against the Giants. But when you look at the majority of NFL teams, it's a lot of swings. It's ups, it's downs, it's almost wins. It's, it's wins that they probably shouldn't have ended up getting, but they got lucky and somehow escaped their way out of it. And the Cardinals have been up and down all year, right? They start off incredibly hot. Kyler Murray goes down. They lose that game in Green Bay or against Green Bay. And all of a sudden it's like, well, can Colt McCoy do enough? Well, Colt McCoy went in and did. I mean, he won two of three for them which was huge for the Arizona Cardinals. But then you get Kyler back, and it's clear that Kyler's not the healthy version of Kyler that we expect. And then all of a sudden, sneak by with one win, then it's three losses in a row, and now we're sitting at a point here where season's borderline on the line here. And not on the line of like, hey, will they make the playoffs or will they miss the playoffs? We knew they were going to make the playoffs. But it's are they going to be a contender or not? And what the Cardinals proved with this win is that they can still be a contender. With Kyler Murray, they can still be a contender. And if they end up getting DeAndre Hopkins back for the playoffs, that's obviously a huge plus. Makes a world of difference having arguably one of the best wide receivers in football on your team. But they did this without James Conner. They did it without uh, DeAndre Hopkins, right? They did it without Rondale Moore. Like they were missing a lot of their key pieces. And the, the, the relationship, the dynamic between Kyler Murray and Zach Ertz has been really effective. So the Cardinals are, are, are sticking around. They're saying, hey, you know what? Our defense is still good. We're going to fix this shit up, and we're going to make a run. And, and I think you know, at least a first-round win in the playoffs is very likely for Arizona. Um, but – these were two playoff teams at a crucial point when I don't think many people, I mean, the Cardinals were a six and a half point underdog in this game. That's what the public perception of the Cardinals was a six and a half point dog to the Cowboys. And what they proved was no, we're, we're, we're not only are we as good, we're a better football team than them. And we're going to go out and prove it. And they did. They did. It was a huge, huge win. Um, those are the, t- you know, Chiefs, Bengals, and then Cardinals, Cowboys. Those are the top two, right? Those are the games that, that changed the tops of both conferences the most. But underneath, we had a bunch of playoff scenarios that were massive. The Raiders pulling off the upset against the Colts. Um, This is the problem with Carson Wentz, right? Carson Wentz got insanely lucky on his one, the one deep down, uh, deep ball touchdown pass that got tipped up into the air and fell right into the hands of T. I think it was T.Y. Hilton. Um, When you play, when, when you're so dependent on the run and teams just sell out against the run, even with Jonathan Taylor, even with Derrick Henry, it gets exceedingly difficult to hold that up. Now, Derrick Henry is one of the rare talents, and I think Jonathan Taylor is almost at that level too, where it doesn't really matter. At some point, he's going to just break one. You know, he's going to break the 70-yard touchdown run like we saw Derrick Henry do time in and time out. Um, 
And, and, but a lot of the times, you know, again, if you're selling out, your defense has to play exceptionally well. Like you have to shut teams out in order to, to really uh, win that way. If you can't get the running game consistently. And what the Raiders said was like, Hey, if we're, if, if we're losing this game, it's going to be because Carson Wentz plays really, really good football. And Carson Wentz, there's still moments that you see. It's a shame that he's never going to be the guy he was in 2016, who was, uh, or 2017, who was an unbelievable quarterback and still one of the best quarterbacks I've ever seen. Uh, that that 12 run stretch he had to start off the season. Carson Wentz is never going to be that guy again. He's just not. He's afraid to be overly aggressive. He doesn't like being a, a game manager because that's not the way he grew up playing football, it's against his nature as a quarterback. And I think it's just a weird thing. Like, can, can he lead teams to the playoffs like this? Sure. But is he ever going to be a, a true franchise guy like we all thought he was in 2017? The answer is probably no. Not impossible, but the answer is probably no, because when push comes to shove, he is going to make mistakes in crucial games. And, and at, the end of the, at the end of the season, at the end of the like, you'll see games where he looks fantastic. And then you'll see games where he throws the ball 12 times. And the truth has to lie somewhere in between those two. And more often than not, it's going to lean towards the not so great. But if you can't trust him to go be the gunslinger that he was in college and the guy that he was in Philly that first couple of years, then he's never really going to be what his talent could allow him to be. And maybe next year, another season with Frank Reich, he finds that stretch again. But the Colts are a good defensive team, and they can run the shit out of the football. But they're also kind of one-dimensional. I mean, Michael Pittman is a really good wide receiver. That was a great pick. There's a guy who was a Belindikoff finalist at USC, and basically nobody talked about him, and he was a second-round draft pick. And since he's been in Indianapolis, especially this year, he's been awesome. And T.Y. Hilton still has a little bit of juice there. So I don't know, maybe you invest in, in a top-level tight end or a top-level wide receiver in the draft this year. You know, the offensive line, despite all the injuries, has still played pretty good. But again, when the injuries pile up and all of a sudden you can't run the ball, what does that make you as a team? And the Titans have found a way to overcome it, which is what I think is so incredible about what Tennessee's done this year. But Dante Foreman's a big reason of that too, because they have a running back who can come in and handle a big workload and still be pretty productive behind a pretty good offensive line. The Colts get decimated with injuries on the offensive line, and you might have the best running back in the world. And yes, run blocking is easier, quote unquote, than pass blocking. But you're still not going to be that elite level run and defensive team because the margin for error, error is that much more significant. It's that much thinner. And the Colts, again, great story. I love Frank Reich. I, even at this point, I don't even hold any ill will towards Carson Wentz. We're getting, you know, the Eagles are getting the first round pick one way or another. But the team construction right now, in order for them to be a legitimate, like Super Bowl winning the division, 10 plus wins every single year kind of team, Carson Wentz has to be more than just a game manager. But I don't know if, if A, they will let him do that and B if he'll ever get back to a point where you can kind of let him just be Carson Wentz 
Because otherwise, his 6'5 frame and 250 and his athleticism and all that stuff that makes him a uniquely talented player, it kind of goes out the window. You know, it's, it's like having a muscle car, but you only drive it 20 miles an hour down the road and back again. You know, it, but also, if you have a muscle car and you don't know how to drive it, it could be dangerous. And I think that's kind of what Carson Wentz is. It's dangerous to let him just go out there and rip it. And I think most teams recognize that and say, we're not afraid of Carson Wentz. So make him beat us because he's going to give us the ball. And, in, and again, he's gotten lucky on so many different times this year with certain turnovers and balls that have gotten called back from penalties, uh, that you know strip fumbles that his offensive linemen have fallen on. There's been a lot of that with Carson Wentz this year. And some years the turnovers are in your favor and sometimes they're not. That's the luck side of football that you can't put a number on. It's just the nature of the game. And in the future, I don't know if they're going to get that same turnover luck. Uh, and on the other side, the Raiders still have a chance to make the playoffs. God bless them. Um, and Rick Pasichia, Rich Pasichia, Pasichia, whatever. It's roughly right. Uh, nine and seven with everything this team's gone through this year, they just had another player get arrested for a DUI this week, which like after what happened with Henry Ruggs, how the fuck are you getting arrested for a DUI as a member of the Raiders? I mean, how the fuck do you get a DUI in any circumstance, but especially that team with everything that's going on there. Um, and yet he's held them afloat. It's a really impressive job by him. And I hope he gets a chance to be the full-time head coach. Um, but I also say this, I also think he's kind of limited. You know, maybe he'll go out and be able to hire offensive, an offense coordinator, defense coordinator that he wants if he gets the job, and maybe the offense and everything will feel different. Um, but a lot of credit goes to Rick Pasicciano, and a lot of credit goes to Derek Carr, man. I mean, Derek Carr, for all of the shit that he gets – and for all of the jokes about, ah, oh, the year six bump, it's finally going to happen. He's just a good quarterback. Uh, honestly, I, I think the, the guy he reminds me the most of is Tony Romo, right? Like Romo, when he was in Dallas, was just always pretty good. He would make some mistakes. He would turn the ball over. Obviously, we know about the muffed hold, right, in the game against Seattle. But for the most part, Tony Romo was just a pretty good quarterback. And that's kind of what Derek Carr is. Like, you don't really like him. But if he's your quarterback, you got to be pretty happy with it. And I love how aggressive he is throwing the deep ball. Um, you know, talk about resurrection projects. Zay Jones becoming like a legitimate target for that team. And he's doing it without any real wide receivers. Obviously, there's no Henry Ruggs. But he's got, you know, 40-year-old Joe Jackson out there. Not actually 40, but, you know, his hamstrings are about 70. And yet he's still finding ways to complete passes. I mean, Zay Jones was a first round pick who was basically just a bust. Everywhere he'd been was out of the league and somehow gets a shot here with, you know, the Raiders and their cars used them a lot. Now Hunter Renfro is obviously a big part of that, you know, having a safety blanket like that. And then Darren Waller too, but Darren Waller has been in and out of the lineup all season. And, 
Hunter Renfro is just a pro. I mean, that dude is just fantastic and has made some spectacular catches too. Like he's not just the, you know, Adam Humphreys, like good pick up the first down kind of, you know, slot white wide receiver. Like he's a little more like Wes Welker, Julian Edelman, guys like who go out and make spectacular plays when the teams need them the most. And that one play that got overturned, you know, that I thought was the walk-off touchdown for the Raiders where he got tackled, he just slid and caught the ball and nobody uh, touched him and then he popped up and ran. Uh, He didn't hold on to the ball there or there's a penalty. I don't remember exactly which one, but I watched that game. I had it on in in red zone on the other TV. And I was like, holy shit, the Raiders just win this game on a a freaking Hunter Renfro, like, sliding catch Marvin Harrison no one touches him he pops up like just a football headed guy man I just love Hunter Renfro and um the Raiders are weirdly enough a really likable team uh, which has not always been said about the Raiders especially in years past with the Antonio Brown stuff and with Gruden um it's kind of similar to what we're seeing with Notre Dame where a lot of teams hate a lot of people hate Notre Dame but with everything that happened with Brian Kelly and now with Marcus Freeman coming in it's kind of like I kind of like Notre Dame it's kind of rooting for them now. So, yeah, good for the Raiders. Um, and, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, for them it's winning they're in. Right? Because I think they play the Chargers next week. I'm pulling up their schedule now. Yeah, they play the Chargers next week. And uh, as we stand right now, they're one game behind the Chargers. Uh, as the Chargers are the 7-seed, Raiders are the 8-seed. So Chargers win on Sunday, and they're in. To say that's to say that that is where they are right now, um, is 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 amazing. Uh, nine and seven, both teams nine and seven. The fact that the Raiders, given everything they've dealt with, have a chance to to win and, and make the playoffs is that's wild. That's 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 really really wild. Um, I want to transition to my team, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles. So the Eagles come back second half, dominated the second half, and uh, pull off a big win against the Washington football team. Um, I've been trying to sit and think about this this game for uh, the last, I don't know, 24, 48 hours, however long it's been. The Eagles, the job they've done here and, and running, coming back from where they were to now be – in the playoffs, which they clinched the spot with the win on uh, on Sunday, is spectacular. Um, the job that Nick Sirianni's done, the expectations I had them as a seven win team going into the year, uh, and, and they're nine and seven as we sit right now. Uh, to say and keeping in mind too that there's a bunch of really close games, uh, like the San Francisco game, uh, the uh, the Giants loss from a few weeks from like a month ago. Um, there's some games in here where you think, man, the Eagles really should have won that, uh, where they could have been even, you know, higher, right? They they could be ten and six right now. They could be eleven and five right now, pretty easily. Uh, and that's not even considering, you know, like some of the blowout games. Um, just a couple of those games that were real close down to the final, you know, final whistle kind of play, you know, kind of games. And I give Nick Sirianni a ton of credit, and Rodney McLeod with the game-winning interceptions, huge. I've said for a long time now, I think Rodney McLeod is, is, has been the most underrated Eagle for the last five years. Uh, he was on that Super Bowl team. He'd gotten there, I think, either that year or the year before. Uh, 
he's just a consistently great player. And when Malcolm Jenkins left going into last season, they needed a leader on that defense. And, and a lot of times people looked at Brandon Graham and Fletcher Cox, understandably so. But for that secondary, for that back end, the role that Rodney McLeod plays is huge. He's been a massive part. And to see him come up with the game-winning pick, which they got a little bit lucky on, I still do think he caught it genuinely. But three out of the four angles that they had got blocked because there was like a player right in line with the ball. So there wasn't ever a really super clean look at the interception itself, uh, but it looked like he had it secured. I, I, I in my book, it was a catch. Uh, and, and I actually trying, trying to be completely unbiased. Like I actually did think he caught it, but there was no way it could have gotten overturned because you didn't have all the camera angles just because of circumstance Like players just happened to be blocking the camera angles. Uh, so there was no clear shot at it. But the thing with the Eagles is, and this whole season right now where we stand as a Philly fan myself is we're, we're playing with house money. All right. We're, we've exceeded expectations. Um, and I love that. I love the fact that I'm going to get to watch the Eagles play in the playoffs, may, probably lose, maybe pull off an upset and win in the, for, in the wild card. I mean, I don't think this team's making any sort of run, but to see them go six and one on their last seven, Right. To see them blow out teams like Denver, who's not a great team, but not a bad team, you know. And yeah, like they've won the games outside of the one Giants game. Like they've won the games they're supposed to win. They put up a really great fight against the Chargers. That's a game I would love to kind of go back and 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 rewatch and and even replay, see what the Eagles could have done if they were playing now as opposed to then. Uh, They won this game with a banged up Jordan Howard and with no Miles Sanders. That's a huge testament. Like, I like Boston Scott, but when Boston Scott is, like, getting 25 touches in a game, it says a lot about where your running back room is. And they still found a way to win this game, which the gritty, tough-fought games, they happen in the NFL, right? Everyone in the NFL is talented on every single team. And then you factor it's a divisional game, and you factor it's the last home game for Washington, and you, you, you put all this stuff into it. And the Washington football team is a well-coached team that wanted to come out and win – the quarterback is the, obviously their biggest weakness. And yet there were still so many times in this game where Tyler Haneke could do whatever he wanted to the Eagles defense. Uh, I've made this point before, um, maybe not on the pod specifically, but the Eagles defense is extraordinarily overrated. Uh, teams, I've, I've heard a lot of people and, and pundits and analysts say, man, the Eagles, they run the ball and they play good defense. No, they run the ball well. And they control the ball well, which makes the job easier on their defense. But Jonathan Gannon plays such soft zone coverage on every single first and second down. And basically until the team, until the the opposing offense gets to the Eagles like 40-yard line, the cornerbacks are playing eight yards off the ball every single play. And it allows for so many easy completions. The efficiency numbers, the DVOA of the Eagles defense, like all of that kind of stuff, is not good, but because the Eagles dominate time of possession, because they can run the ball, they go on these long sustaining drives, they keep the clock moving. It makes it a lot easier for the Eagles defense to hang in games. Now I should say it's been seven, seven games in a row. I believe that the Eagles have held opponents under 18 points or 18 or less points. That is a tremendous feat. I'm not taking anything away from that, but, the two are, are intertwined. 
Your defense is fresher because they're not playing all every single snap on the ground, right? The Eagles go down and, and they close out the first half, go into halftime, Eagles get the ball, and they go on an eight to 10-minute drive, go down, score a touchdown that ultimately helps them take the lead, or sorry, makes it a two-point game. And you're looking at it like, oh, wow, the defense hasn't been on the field for like 35 real-time minutes. The rest that you get in that, in addition to the rust that kind of builds up there uh, on the offensive side, because there's no rhythm to that kind of game, it makes the job easier on the, off, uh, on the Eagles defense. But I'll also say that's complimentary football. That's not a bad thing. But when they go up against a good team in the playoffs, it's going to get exposed. And when you have a, one of the top three cornerbacks in football and Darius Slay, how do you not let him play five yards off and just lock down whoever's in front of him? Why does Darius Slay have to be eight yards deep? Steven Nelson, solid player, decent number two cornerback. I get if you want to give him a little bit of extra cushion. But Darius Slay can match up man-to-man against anybody in the NFL, and he'll win a significant amount of those battles. And he's not going to get burnt deep because Rodney McLeod's a great coverage cor- coverage safety. It's a defense that wants everything in front of them and will live with field goals and, and stopping teams in the red zone, but they don't blitz. And I still think they they're misusing Fletcher Cox and the outside guys, you know, they did a pretty good job against the Washington football team offensive line yesterday, but for as good as the Eagles have been this season in a lot of different areas. And again, the fight and the grit and the determination and winning close games, like games like this happen against inferior teams all the time. I'm not trying to say, oh my God, how do they barely beat the Washington football team? Like, no, like Washington, it's a rival, divisions, pride, all that shit. End of the year, guys are working for their next contract, putting good tape out there. Like you're going to get hard fought games every single week. Right. With the exception of like Jacksonville and the Giants, apparently, who have just gotten their asses kicked the last few weeks. My fear with the Eagles and and the big separator is just I still don't trust Jonathan Gannon uh, as far as I can throw him. All right. Is he a nice guy? Probably. I think he's still a little arrogant. I think he's still unwilling to adapt and, and, and put his players into positions. But. He's also done some good things too, right? Like you can't argue with the hard data, but on its surface, it makes it seem like the Eagles are this great defensive team. And they're not. They're an okay defensive team. They still have talent around the ball all over the place, but they're still just an okay defensive team. And and this whole mentality of like, no, they're actually like, they're great. They can run the ball. They can play great defense. They could beat anybody that formula works in the postseason. I don't know if that's true. I think again, I think it's very possible they win a wild card game, especially if it's a matchup, you know, with uh, like the Rams, even with a quarterback like Matt Stafford, who maybe gets a little careless with the ball. You know, I, even like Dallas in week 18, Eagles have like eight guys on COVID on the COVID list right now. So we may not get some of those guys back in time for the game. But I'm curious just to see how they come out against Dallas because Dallas still has something to play for. The Eagles do still have something to play for. If they win and the Niners lose, the Eagles move up uh, from the seventh seed to the sixth seed. If I 
I'm going to triple check that here, but I'm almost positive that's correct because uh, I believe they both are nine and seven as, as we currently stand. Um, yeah, Eagles, Niners, both nine and seven. So Eagles win, they go move to 10 and seven. They are the sixth seed. And if the 49ers lose, they finish at nine and eight, then the Eagles would be, uh, you know, they would be then the, the seventh seed. So there is something to play. Uh, to play for and even still like a team like Tampa Bay the Eagles played Tampa Bay pretty well earlier in the year I think it was a Thursday night game in Philly and the Eagles came back and made it kind of a close game but I think the Eagles could actually do some damage against the uh, the the Bucks, the Rams and maybe even the Cowboys right if the Broncos can hang up 31 points on the Cowboys the Eagles can too and I'm really curious to see what happens Week 18, when the Eagles host, I should say, host the Cowboys in Philly. The Eagles and Cowboys played on Monday night in like week four or week three, whenever that game was, and they got absolutely shit pumped. And so next week in Philly, the Eagles have something to play for. They want revenge. It's going to be really interesting. Now, if the Eagles win, they take the sixth seed. Dallas right now is the four seed. I, I, I think – they would avoid Dallas in the first round, which preferably I think I would actually rather play the Rams or Tampa Bay than Dallas. I know that sounds crazy, but the divisional matchup there, and I do still think that the Cowboys offense is a terrible matchup for the Eagles defense. And, and I think we might see a little bit more of that on Monday night, but I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see how it all plays out. And the last thing on the Eagles here before I kind of wrap up the pod with some final thoughts I really like Jalen Hurts. I've said it all year. I love the person, and I want to see more from the quarterback. And I'm starting to see it. You know, the running game in this game against Washington was nowhere near as good as it's been uh, over the last, you know, month and a half the Eagles have gone on this run. But Jalen Hurts makes some re- made some really good pocket throws, right? He's seeing the whole field now. He still stares down his number one option a little too much, and that still worries me. But he's developing the mental side and and getting accustomed to the speed while still being able to use his athleticism to his advantage. Uh, There are some strikes to guys like Devontae Smith, uh, especially early in that game, and Dallas Goddard as well, where he's hitting guys on drags over the middle. Uh, He's hitting guys on deep comeback routes. Um, and, and even still, like he threw a one deep ball that almost went that uh, Devonta Smith would have had. He got tripped up for like just a step and it ended up being about half a step too long for him. And if he doesn't get tripped up there, that's a perfectly thrown deep ball. Like Hurts threw that ball perfectly. Devonta Smith just got tripped up on his way to the end zone. So we're starting to see the thrower side of Jalen Hurts look better and better. And next week's going to be a really interesting test against a good Cowboys defense and can the Eagles continue this momentum as they head into the playoffs, but nonetheless, first year head coach, first year starting quarterback, second season in the league, but first year as the starter, um, you trade your, you know, one of the best players in, in franchise history and Zach Ertz halfway through the season, you have $63 million in dead cap money. And you're getting three first-round picks because you thought you were going to be rebuilding this year. And that team finds way to the playoffs? That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Three first-round picks next year. And the fact that the, you know, 
The Dolphins lost there. That's huge. They're eight and eight, and they're playing New England there. Like, I mean, Dolphins could finish eight and nine. That's probably going to be good for, let's see here, 16 ish. You'll have your first. The Eagles will probably be low 20s, and the, the Colts will probably be low 20s. That's three really valuable picks. It is interesting that there was a time where we talked about the Eagles potentially having three first round or three top 10 picks in the first round. And now it's likely going to be on the back half, but I'll take that. I'll take what we've seen this year and what we've seen out of Jalen hurts and still get the three first round picks. (laughs) There's going to be some, some talent to be had there. Devin Lloyd linebacker out of Utah. That kid is special. He's number one on my board for the Eagles right now. Devin Lloyd linebacker. If, one of the linebackers from, from uh, Georgia, Bama, Bama Falls, too. I'll take that. But Devin Lloyd is the guy I want. You put him, TJ Edwards has been playing some awesome football. It's uh, That's that's what you got to look. And then maybe, you look, probably an offensive lineman. Um, you know, some of those guys aren't going to be there forever. I mean, you got, left, you got the left tackle situation done for the future, which is huge. Uh, Landon Dickerson's been really good as he's gotten healthier and stronger throughout the year. Kelsey could honestly probably play another two or three years at a high level. So I don't know if you're looking to replace him immediately, but even Landon Dickerson playing guard has been great. Nate Herbig has actually been awesome for them at right guard, filling in for Brandon Brooks. Lane Johnson, he's statistically, according to Pro Football Focus, the number one right tackle in football. And he missed a couple games with the mental health stuff. And he had freaking ankle reconstruction, you know, surgery this year too. I don't know how much longer Lane plays at that level, but when you look at a guy like Andrew Whitworth playing at a high level into his 40s, you never know. I mean, Lane Johnson, I think, is 32. So there's a chance that, you know, this team could could be around, make a run. Um, linebacker, defensive line, maybe. But if you could if you could snatch another, like, top-level cornerback, that'd be great, too. I just don't know if there's the depth in this year's draft for that. But definitely linebacker. This is a loaded linebacker class, so they should be able to get somebody, you know, with that Dolphins pick pretty high. And who knows? You know, sky's the limit. I, I really do think that. Jalen Hurts, he's turned me into a believer. I'm, I'm fully on the Hurts bandwagon. I've been on it most of the year, but I also was, you know, cautiously optimistic. I'm kind of all in right now with Jalen Hurts and um, and what we see there because it's, uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, that's pretty much all I have. Just some other kind of finishing notes. Um, Aaron Rodgers is really good at football. They've clinched the one seed. Um, the NFC is going to run through Green Bay again. And Aaron Rodgers is playing at an, an elite level. The Packers got Jair Alexander back finally in this game. And wow, what a difference did that make? Now, look, San Francisco was starting Sean Mannion, or sorry, Minnesota was, was starting Sean Mannion on Sunday night. So I'm not going to put too much stock into that. But having him on the outside, changes the complexion of this defense entirely which had been playing really good and then you have an energized and and really good Razul Douglas who's played in a Super Bowl before you have the rookie Eric Stokes there that's three solid I mean one all pro level cornerback and then two solid other options I mean with Eric Stokes' speed playing him out of the slot if you can play him as a nickel corner would be awesome Uh, and and that defensive line like they're just mauling people and then you switch it over, and it's like, okay, do you want Aaron Rodgers to beat you with Devontae Adams, who's literally uncoverable? Or do you want him to beat you with Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon? Or do you want him to beat you with Alan Lazard or one of the other random wide receivers? 
because Aaron Rodgers is going to find a way to do that. The question for Green Bay is, can they do it in the playoffs? Can they do it in the NFC Championship game specifically? Because that's when they've fallen short every year. The only team I feel confident in that could go in and beat Green Bay in Lambeau in an NFC Championship game is Tampa Bay. And that's solely because of Tom Brady and because they did it last year. But I didn't even get to the Antonio Brown shit and his lunacy and how wild he is. I feel like it's just been talked to death and I don't have any other exciting or new take on it other than the dude's a fucking lunatic. But Mike Evans is really your only like top level wide receiver right now. It's a bunch of backups. Tyler Johnson. I didn't even know the guy who scored the game winning touchdown in that game against the Jets, but they arguably should have lost to the Jets. The Bucs should have lost to the Jets, and they didn't by the skin of their fucking teeth because they scored in like less than a minute. The running game, Leonard Fournette still banged up, so you're relying on Keyshawn Vaughn and Ronald Jones. The offensive line has actually been pretty healthy for Tampa Bay this year, which was the reverse last year. They had all the skill guys and backup offensive linemen, and now this year it's the opposite where their skill guys are banged up, but their offensive line's healthy, so that's helpful. The defense has gotten better, but like – Zach Wilson actually looked pretty comfortable on Sunday, which is not a great sign unless Zach Wilson was just playing out of his mind. So I don't even feel that confident about Tampa Bay going into Green Bay and winning. But it's Tom Brady. So, you know, you never know. Dark horse team in the NFC is probably the Niners. Uh, They won that game with Trey Lance. If Jimmy G can come back from the thumb issue, you know, we'll see. Um, but it seems like like for us, definitely being a better conference top to bottom, or at least in the playoff era area for the NFC, um, it feels like it's less competitive. And then in the AFC, you know, Tennessee could walk away at the one seed. They win, they get the one seed. Cincinnati, I think, can go and beat anybody. Buffalo, I think, could go and beat anybody. The Patriots hung a 50-burger up on the, ja- on the Jags. But then it's the Colts and the Charters and the Raiders. Um, as probably going to fill those last two spots. There is a world where uh, the Steelers make the playoffs. Um, I believe they need the Colts to lose. And yeah, if the Colts lose and the Steelers win, then I'm pretty sure because of the tie, the Steelers will be nine, seven, and one, and the Colts would be nine and eight. So by win percentage uh, and record, the Colts or the Steelers would, would jump into the seven seed and then, uh, the winner of Chargers and, and Raiders would would take over the sixth seed. Um, but New England, I mean, they're probably the team that you don't want to play the most because they got back on track in a hurry uh, after the loss to Buffalo last week. That's where we stand. Uh, and week 18 is going to is going to clear it all up. We'll, we'll know what we have by this time next week. Playoffs will be set. We'll be getting ready for wild card Sunday, uh, wild card weekend, rather because Saturday and Sunday. And um, just a wide open AFC. I'm so excited for the AFC playoffs. I think I think the AFC is going to be insane. I think the NFC is probably going to look a little more like it should, but the Niners could beat anybody. I think the Eagles could beat anybody uh, th- that they would play in the first round. I think the Cardinals could beat anybody they play in the first round. Um, but that top of the NFC with, with Green Bay, I, I just don't think – there hasn't been a team that's looked better than them all year. The Chiefs obviously had that stretch. But losing that game and potentially losing home field advantage, I mean, 
that Cincinnati Kansas City game is the most impactful game of the season, bar none, because it solidified the AFC North. It knocked the Chiefs out of the one seed. And who knows if Kansas City loses on Sunday and the Bengals win, the Bengals might have the tiebreaker because of the head to head. Now they're they're in different divisions, so I don't know. The, the, the tiebreakers get so extensive with some of the weird shit like that, but I think there's a chance Cincinnati might be able to get the two seeds still. Um, but Kansas City would have to lose, and I think they're playing Denver, and, and I don't think that's likely to happen. Um, but, yeah, Tennessee, Tennessee, just tr- triple check. I'm pretty sure they play Houston on on Sunday. Um, yeah, they're at, at Houston. Tennessee wins, and they get the number one seed. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. All right, Uh, that's all we got. Oh, by the way, MVP, still Aaron Rodgers. Um, That's all we got. We will be back Friday, uh, hopefully with Vito and Scotty. Um, So keep it locked in. Um, Just enjoy the week. Happy New Year, everybody. Take it easy.